Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. In previous episodes of this podcast, we discussed the early Stoic philosophers of Greece, like Zeno, who tried to live simple lives free of excess, and they lived in isolation. We also learned about Josephus, who, like John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, was a Jew who spent a large part of his life dwelling in the desert as a hermit seeking spiritual enlightenment. We also learned about the Apostle Paul, who chose to live unmarried as a slave to Christ and made vows in the temple to shave his head. We learned about the beautiful monasteries and prolific scholars that the Gaelic people produced. And last of all, last episode, we learned about a 16th century Spanish priest named Rui Lopez, who beat all of the Italian priests in chess and then wrote a book about his strategies. All of these previous episodes were preparing you for this month's series of episodes where we finally tackle the lives of medieval holy men and women in Europe. In this, the first episode of the series, we're going to learn about the first monks and the traditions that they established. The word monk is defined as a male member of a community or fraternity formed for the practice of religious devotions or duties and bound by certain vows. The term originates from the Latin word monachus, meaning a religious hermit. For women, the term is nun, meaning a woman devoted to religious life under vows of celibacy, poverty, and obedience to a superior. This term comes from the Latin word for nana, meaning tutor or elderly person, and it's closely related to the terms for aunt, grandmother, mom, or nanny in various Romance tongues. A monk is different from a priest, though many monks are priests. There are monk brothers who make vows to the abbey and abbot so that they can live and work there. But then there are brothers, but they're also ordained to the priesthood by a bishop, and they participate in administering mass and sacraments, and they're called fathers. This is important because throughout medieval history, orphans, widowers, retirees, and criminals seeking for aid would join a monastery as monks and brothers, but this didn't mean that they were qualified to be priests and fathers. Monks were also not friars. Friars are like monks, they make vows and they belong to an order, but instead of living in an abbey, friars live out among the people and rely on alms to sustain themselves, hence why they belong to the mendicant orders, mendicant meaning beggar. Last of all, I should add that monks live in monasteries. Abbeys are a kind of monastery for Benedictine monks, and we'll get into that later. Now that we've cleared up the definitions, let's dive into the origins. The idea of being a monk evolved from the ancient idea of being a hermit. A hermit is a solitary person living out in the wilderness, seeking spiritual enlightenment. They live an ascetic life. Ascetic means to avoid material and physical pleasures, and often to avoid society in general. As I referenced in the intro, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and Flavius Josephus all spent time as hermits. Likewise, Paul, the Apostles, the Baal Shem Tov, and the Essenes did this as well. No doubt recalling the 40 years that the ancient Israelites dwelt in the desert during the Exodus, or the 40 days that Noah spent on the ark. But being a hermit is not something unique to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Zeno, the first Stoic, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, and many other legendary hermits have walked alone in Sikh, Jainist, Hindu, Islamic, and Sufi traditions across the Asian continent. 
The first famous Christian hermit after Jesus Christ was Paul of Thebes, who lived for over a hundred years from AD 227 to 341. After the Christians were chased out of Thebes in Egypt, Paul decided to live a lonely life of penitence in a desert cave next to a spring and palm tree. The tree provided him fruit and clothing, and the spring gave him fresh water. Needless to say, his extreme lifestyle quickly made him a legend among the devout Christians, and he inspired a series of other Christian men who would later become known as the Desert Fathers. One of these men, who met Paul and became his disciple, actually received from Paul his only possession, his palm frond cloak. That man was Saint Anthony of Egypt. He would treasure that cloak, only wearing it on Pentecost and Easter. Inspired by his master, Saint Anthony dwelt in solitude in the lands by a mountain near the Nile for 19 years. At the age of 35, he had taken to sleeping in some ruins near his cave, and that was when he was visited by Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria. The good bishop describes the meeting as such, quote, When we visited St. Anthony in the ruins where he lived, we heard a commotion, thousands of voices, and the clash of arms. Also at night, wild beasts would come, and the saint fought them off with prayer. The demons who tortured Anthony made such a racket that the whole place was shaken, knocking over the four walls of the tomb. They came in droves, taking the form of all kinds of monstrous beasts and hideous reptiles. And the whole place was filled with lions, bears, leopards, bulls, wolves, asps, and scorpions. The lions roared, ready to attack. Bulls seemed to threaten him with their horns. Snakes advanced, crawling on the ground, seeking a place of attack. And wolves prowled around him. They were all making a terrible noise. Groaning in pain, St. Anthony faced the demons, laughing. If you had any power, only one of you would be enough to kill me. But the Lord has taken away your strength, so you want to frighten me by your number. The proof of your powerlessness is that you are reduced to taking the form of senseless animals. If you have any power against me, come on, attack me. But if you cannot do anything, why torment yourselves unnecessarily? My faith in God is my defense against you. Close quote. And it certainly was. Athanasius describes how this wasn't a one-night occurrence. St. Anthony fought the temptations and demons of the devil almost every night, until eventually one fateful night, the voice of the Lord came to him and said, I waited, observing your fight, and since you have resisted so bravely, I will now always be at your side and will make your name famous throughout the world. Close quote. These temptations became an important part of religious iconography and art. The first painting by Michelangelo was The Temptations of St. Anthony. Hermanius Bosch, Matthias Grunewald, Max Ernst, Paul Cezanne, and Salvador Dali all have made legendary works of art related to this story. Nevertheless, after this confirmation from the Lord, Anthony felt free to leave his self-imposed exile and temptations behind. He went searching the desert for the other hermits who had imitated him, and he invited them to form a community with him so that they could meet together and worship together on Saturdays and Sundays. That community did not live in the same isolation as the earlier hermits. Instead, they went about preaching and even fought against the her heresy of Arianism. Perhaps they realized the truth immortalized in a future text for monks, the Ancrin Rilwell, that said, quote, When a man goeth alone in a slippery path, he soon slides and falls. 
and when many go together and everyone has hold of another's hand, if any of them begin to slide, the next one pulls him up before he quite fall. And if they grow weary, everyone is supported by another." Close quote. Truly, it is easier to resist temptation as a community, and you can do far more good not living alone, but working together, teaching and lifting others. A priest with a life similar to Anthony's once declared, God's fold and his people are those who are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that they may be in, even until death." When Anthony died, his followers built a monastery, Dair Mari Antonios, where they all used to meet. It is now the oldest monastery in the world, still operating today. The fame of Anthony spread, and it inspired others to form their own communities. The writings and words of Anthony, spread by Bishop Athanasius, became the founding documents for monastic life. One of the men Anthony inspired greatly expanded and formalized his work. This was St. Pacomius. St. Pacomius realized that monks would do better to not just worship together, but also live and work together, rather than separately survive in the desert. This opened up the monk lifestyle to not just the people who can survive off of eating sand and raindrops and win a season of alone like St. Anthony could. Instead, people who are just normal, regular, everyday citizens could be monks. At Pacomian monasteries, the monks were separated from the world by a wall, but not from each other. They worked in the same shared space, they ate the same food, they wore the same clothes, and they each dwelt in their own identical rooms. The monks were able to help each other survive, thrive, live obediently, and be held accountable. The head of a monastery was known by the Syriac word for father, which is Abba, or abbot in English. And the abbot's lieutenants, who ran each house of monks, were called the provosts. Each house of monks was dedicated to a different trade that the community needed, such as carpentry, agriculture, and even bookbinding. Sometimes they were separated by other ways, like when they put all the Greeks into one house. By the time Pacomius died, he had established 3,000 of these communities, most of which were in Egypt. There were so many working monks in Egypt that in the 4th century AD, it was not uncommon to see a monk-owned and operated ship transporting goods across the Nile. Another man inspired by St. Anthony who played a big role in spreading his ideas, was St. Jerome. Born a Christian in Slovenia, as a young man, Jerome moved to Rome, where he studied and became an expert in Latin and Roman literature and philosophy. When he received a dream from the Lord saying that he belonged more to Cicero's church than to Christ's, Jerome was deeply troubled. Like the hermits before him, he went to dwell in the desert of Chalcis for two years to find inner peace. During that time, he learned Syriac, Greek, and Hebrew so that he could finally understand the Christian and Jewish literature. And he'd finally have something to read since not being able to read the Latin classics was driving him crazy. He soon became the foremost religious scholar, editor, and translator of his day. When he came back to Rome, he was able to serve as Pope Damasus' secretary. During that time, he tutored many of the noble Christians of Rome including many widows and virgins. Together, they created a plan to retire as monks and nuns into the wilderness. 
In Rome, Jerome worked on translating the Bible into the common tongue, Latin. This was called the Vulgate Bible. He also edited and cataloged the stories and writings of earlier monks like Anthony and Paul of Thebes, and not only presented a coherent defense of the monastic lifestyle against its opponents, among whom many were Arians, but his writings and ideas also presented a path forward for many others who wanted to live as monks, including the very many women who wanted to do so. All of these writings embroiled Jerome into controversy. He was obliged to finally flee from Babylon and leave Rome. And so he and his monastic-minded friends set off to retire to the Holy Land once and for all. They arrived in Bethlehem, and Jerome and his friend Paula established a monastery for men under Jerome's direction and three cloisters for women forming one convent under Paula's supervision as well as a hostel for pilgrims. After Jerome's work, Pacomian monasteries spread like wildfire from Egypt and now to the Holy Land. Despite all this, monasticism still remained a distinctly Eastern tradition. And as a matter of fact, the church in the East in the Byzantine Empire and the church in the West were growing less and less alike. But then a miracle happened that would eventually help heal the divide it started with a wealthy Roman couple living near Nursia, giving birth to twins in the year A.D. 480. The twins, a boy and a girl, would someday be known as St. Benedict and St. Scholastica. The twins were born almost a hundred years after Jerome and his friends left Rome. They grew up learning and working together as close friends until Benedict received an opportunity to study in the Eternal City. Scholastica was required to stay home until she could marry or consecrate herself to the church, which she soon chose the latter. Meanwhile, the Rome of Benedict's youth was not to his liking. It was decaying and depraved. King Theodoric of the Ostrogoths ruled over it. Among his many issues, he was of the Arian sect, and after some years of tolerance, he eventually tried to force the rest of his kingdom into his heresy. The Catholic Pope John, as well as Theodoric's advisor, the foremost Christian and secular scholar of the day, Bothius, they were both thrown in a dungeon to starve to death after they had tried to bridge the theological gaps with the Byzantines. In addition to political and religious turmoil besetting the town, the city was also generally a very wicked and licentious place, full of crime, drinking, and perversions. Disgusted, Benedict left the town. He retreated to a field where he dwelt alone in a cave, fasting and praying for three years. News of his piety spread, and disciples would visit him in his cave to learn at his feet. Eventually, some monks persuaded Benedict to serve as their abbot. Benedict organized them into twelve monasteries of twelve monks. During this time, Scholastica, unable to enter her brother's monasteries, decided to establish a religious community for women. In 530, the siblings reunited. Benedict established a monastery, and Scholastica established a hermitage in a town called Cassino, which lies between Rome and Naples. Their communities were just five miles apart. Benedict served as abbot and Scholastica as abbess. The siblings would meet together once a year in a farmhouse to discuss spiritual matters. Together, the two siblings converted the pagan town to Christianity, and they began the work of establishing rules for their new monasteries. Benedict's monks and Scholastica's nuns became known as black monks for the color of their habits. 
but they were also known as Benedictines for their adherence to Benedict's greatest and most long-lasting work, his rule. The Rule of St. Benedict is a book of precepts written in Latin in 516 that teaches monks how to be monks. It tells them what scriptures to recite and when. It gives them a schedule. It teaches them how to be reverent, humble, and pray. It puts forth steps to go from a civilian off the street and be initiated as a novitiate. It lays out the rules that abbots need to follow and the responsibilities that they have for the salvation of souls. It teaches monks how to counsel with one another and how to democratically make decisions in order to live communally. One of those democratic decisions was to vote for who would serve as the abbot for life. The rule of St. Benedict was an instant hit, and since it didn't have any specific gender requirements, it was widely embraced by both monks and nuns, especially Scholastica's nuns. King Charlemagne himself was impressed with the work, and he had it copied and distributed to all the monks in his vast domain. It has since become one of the most integral works of Western civilization, embodying the idea of a constitution, as well as introducing the precepts of democracy to a non-democratic people. According to Britannica, his instructions on humility, silence, and obedience have become part of the spiritual treasury of the church, from which not only monastic bodies, but also legislators of various institutions have drawn inspiration. The siblings would eventually grow old together, and Scholastica passed away in 543. According to Francis Media, quote, the brother and sister spent their last day together in prayer and conversation. Scholastica sensed her death was close at hand, and she begged Benedict to stay with her until the next day. He refused her request because he did not want to spend a night outside the monastery, thus breaking his own rule. Scholastica asked God to let her brother remain, and so a severe thunderstorm broke out, preventing Benedict and his monks from returning to the abbey. Benedict cried out, God forgive you, th sister, what have you done? Scholastica replied, I asked a favor of you, and you refused. I asked it of God, and he granted it. The brother and sister parted the next morning after their long discussion. Three days later, Benedict was praying in his monastery and saw the soul of his sister rising heavenward in the form of a white dove. Benedict then announced the death of his sister to the monks and later buried her in the same tomb that he had prepared for himself. Close quote. A few weeks later, Benedict died and was buried in that exact same tomb. Saint Scholastica would be venerated and become the patron saint of nuns and educators. Meanwhile, Pope Benedict XVI addressed the influence of St. Benedict on Western Europe. He said that, quote, With his life and work, St. Benedict exercised a fundamental influence on the development of European civilization and culture, and helped Europe to emerge from the dark night of history that followed the fall of the Roman Empire, close quote. In 1964, St. Benedict was declared the patron saint of Europe by Pope Paul VI. Fun fact, 16 years later in 1980, Pope John Paul II added two more patron saints of Europe, and one of them was St. Cyril, who we learned about two episodes ago when we talked about the Slavs. Anyway, as you can see, these twins, they left an indelible impression on Europe, bringing monasticism to Western Europe and linking it more tightly to their Eastern brothers and sisters, who would soon adopt the rule of St. Benedict themselves. Both Scholastica and Benedict are venerated by the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And 
that concludes our episode for today. Now that you've learned about the pioneers who laid the foundation of monasticism in Western Europe, in the coming weeks we can discuss what it was like to be a monk. We'll also learn why we have them to thank for Western civilization. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.